If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus 14. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab that and uh, open up to Exodus, second book in the Bible, 14th chapter. Uh, Galleon, typically what we do is preach through books of the Bible so that we don't skip stuff. We believe all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And, uh, and, and we uh, put meat on the bones of that belief, if you will, by actually preaching everything it says. And this morning we continue our series through the book of Exodus. And we're in, honestly, a fairly familiar passage that many have probably heard growing up. Um, it, it's possible someone hasn't heard this story before, and this will be a great story to hear. Uh, but we want to read this story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea this morning. Exodus chapter 14. God's Word says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in, in front of pi Hiharoth between Migdal and the sea, in front of baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." And Israel did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea, by pi Haroth in front of Belzephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea... On dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Imagine the scene. Put yourself in the Israelite shoes. You have lived your entire life in bondage to the Egyptians, a foreign world power. Your God, centuries before you were born, had made promises to your forefathers that one day He would set them free. That He would take your people to a promised land. And yet, your entire life, Week after week, year after year, nothing has changed. You've seen none of God's promises come true. You've been in bondage. That is all that you have ever known. So that you've given up hope that God is even real or able to keep His promises. And yet, in recent days, a man named Moses, a prophet, showed up on the scene He commanded the king of the ancient world, Pharaoh, to let you and your people Israel go. 
And when Pharaoh refused through Moses, God showed his power and set you free. So that for the first time in your life, your bonds have been broken. For the first time in your life, your future looks bright. Your God is leading you. Everything is going your way. Your dreams have come true. You're looking forward to the promised land. But then as you approach the Red Sea and you're wondering, why is Moses leading us this way? When you approach the Red Sea far too wide to cross, you hear and see in the distance a rumbling, a dust cloud rising, and you realize that the most powerful military in the ancient world, the Egyptians, are coming to take you back to the bondage you had just been set free from. You find yourself stuck between two immovable forces and you have no hope of escape. How would you respond? Exodus 14 shows us how the people of Israel respond to this trying situation because this is exactly their story. But it also points us to four truths about God. Four truths about God that can give us rest on Resurrection Sunday. The first of those truths that we learn about God in Exodus 14 is that God sets the scene and sends the enemy. God is the one who sets the scene and sends the enemy. God is working behind the scenes in this entire scenario. God is the one who told Moses where to go. God is the one that told Moses the direction to head, where to camp. God is intentionally leading Israel to look like they have no idea what they're doing and they're lost in the wilderness. He intentionally is making them look weak and taking them to a vulnerable position for a military attack. Why? Because God wants Pharaoh to notice. God wants Pharaoh to rethink letting them go. God wants Pharaoh to pursue those who he had just set free. You might ask, why in the world would God set the scene like this and then harden Pharaoh's heart and send the Egyptians? Why in the world would a good and righteous God do that? And the answer is this. Because God has bigger purposes than Israel or we will ever know. God's highest goal in creating the world was not to make you happy. It was not to make everything in your life easy. His highest goal is His own glory. And that is a good thing because He alone is worthy of any glory. His highest goal is His glory, that His name... And His character would be put on display and marveled at by the watching world. Or in God's own words in chapter 13 verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. If you've been here, Through the Exodus series, you know that God in the story so far has already defeated all the false gods of the Egyptians through sending the plagues 
God has already shown His superiority over Pharaoh and the Egyptians through the Passover that He set His people Israel free through. But here God is setting the scene for one final showdown with Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that His enemies and so that the nations who will hear of this battle will always know that there is only one true God and He is not to be trifled with. God will fight one last battle so that His reputation will increase, so that His power will be revered. But in order for God to accomplish that purpose, He must put His people in a spot where defeat seems sure, where hope seems lost, and where dependence on Him is necessary. And God does the same kind of thing in His people's lives today. So often today we fall into the trap of believing that once we repent and believe in the gospel, once we get right with God, then God is going to make the rest of our lives easy. He's going to take away all the trials, all the valleys, and all the storms. So often we fall for that kind of belief system. But friends, God has never promised His people a trial-free life. God has promised His people that He will glorify Himself. He has promised His people He is for us, not against us. He has promised that He will sanctify and make us holy and prepare us for glory. He has promised us a not guilty verdict before Him one day if we've trusted in Jesus. He has promised us even that we will be raised from the dead. But if you are seeking to live faithfully for God, and you're living your life looking back and remembering all that Christ has done to set you free, and you're looking forward to the future fulfillment of all of His promises, you will still often find yourselves in daily battles and trials and hardships and tragedies and hopeless situations in the present. And that is not by accident. God is testing God is shaping and God is molding His people. God is showing us what it is that we truly trust in. God is revealing to us the idols, the God replacements that we really put our hope in. God is calling us into a deeper dependence on Him and not ourselves. God is working to show us That He and not this world is truly satisfying. God wants us to never forget that this is not our true home. That dwelling with Him in His presence forever is what we've been created for. And God does this often through hardships and trials and seemingly hopeless situations. And He does it for His purposes, for His glory, and for His people's good. Friends, there are no accidents in the economy of God's rule and reign. He is the sovereign one and everything has a purpose. He is the God in Exodus 
and in our lives, who sets the scene, who even sends the enemy and the trial and the valley and the storm in our lives and in Israel's life in the past. That's the first truth that we see about God in Exodus 14. But there's more. Secondly, we see that God fights the battle for His people. God sends the enemy, and then God does the fighting. He just says, just be quiet and watch. I'll do the work. Because if Israel attempted to fight Egypt in their own power, they would have no chance against the most advanced military in the ancient world and their most advanced weapon of the day, the chariot. Israel could not outrun or outfight Egypt. They were not able to cross the Red Sea. This battle was above their pay grade. Their only option for survival was to surrender. And to go back to Egypt, living the remainder of their lives in the bondage they had just been set free from. But Israel has one thing going for them. They've got God on their side. And as it turns out, no matter how weak and pathetic and hopeless and vulnerable and intimidated they are, having God on your side is really all that you need. As it turns out, God is the secret weapon that is much more powerful than any chariot in the ancient world. The same God who protected them from the plagues, who set them free through the Passover, who demolished the Egyptian gods, He is still with them. And God's presence is with these scared, vulnerable, weak, outmatched people. And God doesn't call them to fight Because there's nothing that they can do to contribute to the victory. All they're called to do is to wait, to watch, to believe. Because their mighty warrior God is about to do work for them. So that we read, as Egypt draws near, God's presence comes down in a cloud and shields Israel from the onslaught that is coming their way. And while they're shielded, God splits the sea into two towering walls of water that are erected with a path of dry ground in the middle, the path to their salvation. And by faith, Israel crosses this path safely. And then Egypt thinks, well, we'll follow them too. That was not a wise move. You ever find yourself with a wall of water standing up, I would encourage you, unless God is audibly telling you to go through it, to not do it. It's not wise. It's a death trap, and yet they do it. And then God sends the Egyptians into confusion, and their chariot wheels begin to get stuck. And just like Israel had previously been found in a vulnerable situation with nowhere to go and no hope to be found, Egypt is now stuck between the waters of God's judgment with nowhere to go. And notice what Egypt recognizes in verse 25. Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They know who's fighting against them. God's enemies who have refused to repent, who have refused to surrender to Him, who have refused to acknowledge His majesty and might as the true God. Again and again and again in the pages of Exodus, they know 
who they're fighting against. They know God is warring against them and they have arrogantly waited too long. They've waited until it's too late to respond to God in the right way. And at God's command, the walls of water fall upon the Egyptians and they are destroyed. Friends, we live in a free country today where we can worship as we please. We live in a country where we are slaves to no man in a physical sense like Israel was in the book of Exodus. But the Bible tells us that while we have so many freedoms afforded to us today, that we are still slaves. We are slaves to a sin nature We are slaves to believing Satan's lies. We are slaves to love the fallen world and all that it offers more than God. We are slaves to questioning God's word and his character, thinking we know better than he is. And our enemy is no charging army like Israel faced, but our enemy is Satan who accuses us before God of our guilt and our sin. And listen, he's right. We are guilty and sinful and God is holy. Our enemy, Satan, also is constantly trying to deceive us to believe the lies of the world, to hear stories like the Red Sea and the resurrection and the cross and the Gospels and think, that doesn't make any sense. That can't be true. I know better than this. Satan constantly is using the weapons of warfare, accusation and deception to fight against God's people, to do whatever he can to make us stray from God's call on our lives, to live for and surrender to him. And just like Israel believes in Exodus 14, that if they can't run away, or if they can't win the battle on their own, then there's no hope against the enemy. In the same way, Israel can only have hope if they see that they can do it, they can fight, they can win. We today are prone to believe that we can win our spiritual battles in our own strength. We so often fall for the lie that if we just do enough good things, then we can cover up our guilt before God for our sin. We so often fall for the false belief that We can trust in our own good works and our faithfulness to God can make up for our rebellion. Even many who trust in Jesus for salvation will fall into the trap of believing that their spiritual battles are to be won in our own strength, with our own effort, with our own will, power. But friends, just like Israel in Exodus, our salvation... And our sanctification is the work of God. The silencing of Satan's accusations and the defeat of Satan's deceptions are the work of God in our lives. Do we have to believe? Absolutely we do. Do we have to put on spiritual armor and put in effort? Absolutely. But listen to me. Any efforts that we put forward to fight and win spiritual battles will only be effective if God is working through us and in us and for us. And if you don't like that, it's because you're proud and you think that you can do a lot more than you really can. That's what the Bible says. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We are as hopeless and vulnerable and weak 
in our spiritual battles as the people of Israel are, Israel are when they find themselves between the Egyptians and the Red Sea. We can't do it on our own. We need God. We need God. And just as God defeats Egypt by calling Israel to believe in His power and to watch Him do the work, God the Son, Jesus Christ, fights the battle for His people today, disarming Satan's weapons through winning the victory on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ silences Satan's accusations of our guilt by facing the judgment before God that we deserve for our sin so we can be forgiven and we can be considered not guilty. When we believe in the victory Jesus won for us, His Spirit comes and dwells inside of us and empowers us to believe the truth instead of Satan's lies, to love God more than this world and to follow the Spirit instead of the flesh. Friends, our salvation, our sanctification, just like Israel's, are the work of God. The God who fights for His people, and who wins the victory we could never win. That's the second truth. We see that God sets the scene, God sends the enemy, and also we see that God fights the battle for His people just like He does for us through Jesus. Some of you here this morning need to listen to what I'm saying. Because you think that you're not fighting a spiritual battle. You think you've got life figured out. And you think that all this mumbo-jumbo about Jesus and about Him raising from the dead and dying for your sins isn't worth committing your life to because you don't think that you're really that bad of a person. You see a bunch of people in the community and in the world that are running after the things of the world and you compare yourselves to them. And you say, at least I ain't doing this. At least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not as bad as that. And then you're told that you've got to repent and believe in what Jesus did because your works aren't good enough. And that that chafes on you. You don't like that. You're a self-made man or woman. You know better than that. You can work hard and make your dreams come true. Not according to the Bible. You can believe that. Just don't pretend you're following God because you're not if you believe that. God has to fight the battle for you through Jesus Christ. And until you recognize your problem. Until you surrender and say, I can't do this, Jesus has to for me. Then you might as well tune out. God fights the battle for His people. That's second truth. Number three, we see also in Exodus 14 that in our text, God turns fear into faith. And He turns pessimism into praise. Some of you are pessimistic about what I just said. Keep listening. Israel was the same way. Until they saw God save them. So keep listening. Did you notice Israel's initial reaction when they see the enemy coming? Their eyes are fixed on the enemy. They see the Egyptians coming with their chariots. They see the Red Sea. They're hopeless. They're scared to death. They're scared to death. They cry out. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt 
Moses, that you brought us out here in the wilderness to die. I'd rather live my life in bondage in Egypt than die out here in the wilderness. Their fear makes them lose hope. They're certain of impending death. Their trial is too much. They question God's character. Their fear makes them question God's leader Moses, who had led them for their bondage to be broken. Their fear makes them long for their bondage again. Something that they'd grown accustomed to. They didn't like their bondage, but at least they were comfortable in it. Some of you have been living in bondage to sin for so long that you think it's normal. Some of you are so wrapped up in the worldview of this fallen world that you think that that's normal. And you've grown accustomed to it. That's what Israel does. Immediately when they see hardship coming their way, it makes them long for bondage again. How often do believers trust in Christ, recognize their need, and then they try to make a break. They try to make a break from the sin in their life. They try to surrender and live for Him and follow Him. And things get hard and it costs them friends and it costs them social status. And they thought that everything was going to be easy and it's not. And then they just give up and say, I'm just going to go back to this. I'm just going to go back to the world. Just go back to how I was living before. That's what Israel is doing here, their initial response when things are not easy is to be fearful of their enemies and pessimistic about the promises of God. But look at what God does. God doesn't get up and preach them a sermon and yell at them. God doesn't lecture them about their lack of faith. Instead, God answers their questions and their doubt and their pessimism and their fear, not with words, but with action. Their eyes are fixed on the bigness of their enemy, but God's presence comes down and shields them with an impenetrable wall. Their eyes are fixed on the impassable obstacle of the Red Sea, but God steps into their trial and splits the sea to make a path of salvation for them. When it opens, their eyes are fixed on the ominous path walking through the towering walls of water, but God is with them and prompts them to believe and to pass through. When they get through the Red Sea and they turn around, their eyes are fixed on their powerful enemy, the Egyptian that are charging towards them. But God steps in and makes the walls of water fall and drowns them so that all Israel sees is the rushing of the waters and floating corpses of their enemies. Every step of the way, their fear leads them to fix their eyes on their enemies and their obstacles. But God wants His people to lift their gaze above their enemies, above their obstacles to Him. God wants His people to see that He is bigger and He is stronger than anything that they could ever fear. This is why God has set up this scene and sent the enemies in the first place. He wants the Egyptians and He wants the nations to know who He is, but He also wants His people to experience 
the greatness and the power of who He is. He wants His people to be in all of Him, not the bigness and power of their enemies. If you paid attention when I read a minute ago, you saw that before the Red Sea we read, they feared greatly, cried out angrily, had no hope, questioned their leaders, and longed to go back to bondage. But what happens after they saw a display of the power of God in their salvation through the Red Sea? We read at the end of our text in verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people now feared who? Not the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Israel's awe, Israel's fear, Israel's respect shifts from being amazed at the Egyptians and their power to being amazed at their God's power. Israel's pessimism turns and changes their pessimism towards God's ability to keep His promises, shifts towards a respect and a worship and a praise of their God who has given them the victory. The gaze of their eyes has elevated above the obstacles that they face, the trials in their past and the enemies that are opposing them to the bigness and the grandeur and the might and the trustworthiness of their God. And that is what God wants to do afresh in His people's lives today. Friends, every one of us faces temptation. Every one of us faces doubts, trials, even tragedy. And in the midst of the storm and valley that we're in, our problems, our circumstances seem like the biggest obstacle imaginable. They lead us to lose all hope. We see this obstacle and trial, we think this is bigger than God. God must not really be in control. God must not really be for me. In the midst of these things, we are prone to run back to our bondage when the life of faith is hard. But God wants us to remember that our biggest problem is not the trial or situation that you're facing right now, but according to God's Word, the biggest obstacle and the biggest problem we've ever faced is that in our sin we stand opposed to God and we cannot fix that problem. And yet through Jesus, God has solved that problem and overcome our biggest Obstacle Through Jesus, we don't have to face God's judgment like the Egyptians do. God's judgment, the one thing that truly is terrifying. And friends, believers, if you can trust that God has fixed that biggest of your problems, then you can have confidence as well that He can handle all the smaller stuff that seems so big and hard as we're going through it. But for us to believe God's promises and live lives of faith instead of fear, we have to lift our eyes to where true help comes from. From our God and our Savior, our Lord and our King, the eternal and unchangeable, the promise-making and promise-keeping God. Because when our eyes are fixed on Him, He can turn our fear into faith and our pessimism into praise. But there's one last thing that I want you to notice in, in our text. One last thing about God. And it's this, 
In our text, God displays death's destruction. God displays death's destruction. Israel asks, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to the wilderness to die? They're confident they're about to die. So what does God do? He makes them walk through some billowing towers of water. In the ancient world, bodies of water represented chaos and destruction, disorder and judgment. The bodies of water in the world held great unknowns, giant sea creatures, and always were considered to be an ominous threat. Imagery found throughout the Old Testament and then even in the book of Revelation use water to represent the judgment of God. And yet it's through water that God calls His people to walk when they're fearful of the impending death that they will face. Descending into a pathway through walls of water would be extremely frightening. I don't know about you guys, but every time that I'm driving somewhere and have to go through a tunnel that goes underwater, I always begin to question the competence of the engineers and architects that put this together. I know that it is a rare thing for something like that to end in tragedy, but it happens. If you've ever been to an aquarium with your kids, I like looking down on the water. I don't like walking through the tunnel where the fish are swimming over you because I immediately start looking for the exits and wondering what's going to happen if one of these stupid kids break the glass. (laughs) I feel my vulnerability in that moment. If you ever have to go over a long bridge over water, some people start making plans, not buckling, rolling down the windows so that if something happens, the bridge goes down, they can get out and start swimming. They're looking for the closest place to go. Some of us are just a little bit scared of water. Walking through billowing towers of water would scare the crap out of me. It is a fear-inducing situation because for the ancient Israelites who considered water to represent judgment and death and chaos and disorder, this would be like walking into a death trap. And that's exactly the point God was going for. The people of Israel were certain that they were about to go to the grave. And the same God who has broken their bondage through the shedding of blood is about to save them from the grave and show that He is able to conquer even certain death. So He has them by faith walk through the waters of sure death and come out alive while they watch their enemies who don't trust in God face the judgment of God. Friends, walking through the waters of judgment and coming out alive on the shore is a Red Sea resurrection showing that Israel is saved from the grave. God is saving His people. God is keeping His promises. But He is also giving them categories for a greater salvation to come in the future. He is giving them categories for a salvation that will come through a greater 
son of God than Israel ever was. Giving them categories for a greater sacrifice than the Passover lamb could ever be. And giving them categories for a future and coming resurrection that is far greater than anything the Red Sea could symbolize. God is giving His people categories of salvation in advance so that when His Son Jesus comes to live the perfect life that they could not live and die the death that they deserve and overcome the grave that they should be in and defeat the enemies that they could never conquer. They will repent and believe and surrender and marvel recognizing the wisdom and the power of God. God saved Israel to keep His promises to them in Exodus 14, but He also saved Israel through the Red Sea for you and for me. Because just like Israel faces a certain judgment and death in Exodus 14, the Scriptures tell us that as sinners before a holy God who live our lives imperfectly spitting in His face, acting as if we know better than Him, because He is good and righteous and just and holy, that we face a certain death and we will face the judgment of God as well. Friends, a day is coming when we will all give an account to God for our lives. And the God who made us for His glory, and who always does what is right and just, will do what is right and just on Judgment Day. He will stand as an enemy and righteously punish for eternity those who have refused to surrender to Him. Those who have trusted not in His Son, but in their own goodness. Those who have trusted not in their own faith, but in the faithfulness of their family. Those who have lived for their own kingdom and not God's, for their own glory and not God's, made their own rules instead of God's, living as their own God and King instead of bowing the knee and surrendering to Him. You know how to get people to come back to church the week after Easter? You don't preach about floating corpses in hell. You know how to get people saved so their life change? You tell them the truth. That's what God's Word says. If you don't like it, your problem's not with me. It's with what the Scriptures say. Because, friends, a day is coming... A day is coming and a judgment looms for God's enemies that makes drowning in the Red Sea look like a fun trip to the water park. The great and eternal judgment of God can only be avoided by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who fights the battle and wins the victory and conquers the enemy that we cannot fight and win and conquer. He lived sinlessly for you. He shed His blood and faced God's judgment on the cross for you. And His resurrection on Easter Sunday that we sing about and consider this morning 
It proved that the penalty Jesus paid on the cross for sin had worked. That the payment he had made cleared. That it was sufficient. That God's judgment that we should face for our sin had been turned away because Jesus bore it in our place. And yet we must repent and believe. We must acknowledge our sin, turn away from it, and turn towards Jesus in faith, surrendering our lives to Him as Lord and King. The Red Sea resurrection points forward to an Easter Sunday resurrection. But Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate each Easter also points forward to a modern-day resurrection. And this is the problem. Most of you have heard the story of the Red Sea. Most of you have heard the story of Jesus coming out of the grave. But so often, we let it sit. We're comfortable with the fact that we know those stories. i got news for you. Satan knows those stories. The devil knows those stories. Knowing those stories doesn't matter. The question is not do you know about the Red Sea resurrection or the Easter Sunday resurrection. The question is have you experienced a modern day resurrection in your life? Because what the Bible tells us Listen to me. This is, this is what the Bible says. You can have your own version of Christianity that's pretend and made up where you pick and choose what you like or you can do what the Bible says. Your call. I would go with the Bible. This is what the Bible says about what the, Christ, the, the normal Christian life looks like. Okay? Ready? It says, when you're born again by faith in Jesus, you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. God opens up your blind eyes and softens our hard heart. It says that when you're born again by faith in Jesus, your status before God goes from guilty to forgiven. The bondage of sin in your life is broken. That doesn't mean that you'll be perfect. That doesn't mean you'll never be tempted or have doubts. It means that you have a greater affection for Jesus, a greater desire for Jesus and to live for him. That's what what it means to be born again. God creates in you a new desire because he's given you a new heart so that you treasure Jesus more than you treasure the things of this world, which means fundamentally that the true Christian life is going to be a transformed life that's going to look different from the world around you. That's the normal Christian life. When we're born again by faith in Jesus, God's Spirit dwells in us and empowers us to love him and to live for him. When we're born again, we are guaranteed... That the present spiritual resurrection that we have experienced will guarantee us a future bodily resurrection where just like Jesus, we will have a glorified, perfected, resurrected body that will dwell with God forever. Jesus died and rose again. And God calls His people to follow in His footsteps, dying to ourselves in repentance and faith so we can be raised again to walk in newness of life, confident that we already have been spiritually resurrected and that one day we will be bodily resurrected. The question this morning is not, have you heard the story of the Red Sea? Or do you even believe that Jesus rose from the dead? The question is instead, 
Have you been spiritually resurrected and born again in a way that has fundamentally changed your life and shifted your allegiances from living for the world and yourself to living for God and His kingdom? The Bible does not paint a pretty picture of who we are apart from Christ. So often today you can go to church and you can hear people that want to build you up and give you 20-minute sermonettes that just make you feel special about yourself, like you're a unique snowflake, and then we can all sing Kumbaya and, and all that stuff. You go home, you watch it on TV, you listen to it on the radio. And what happens when we, when we, when we read the Bible, or we hear someone who says, God, God expects us to repent and believe and surrender and live our lives with Him as King, we say, I think I'd rather just go be somewhere where I'm more comfortable where we just kind of keep it shallow and surface level and you just give me tips about how to be a good parent or manage my money and things like that. Listen, Jesus doesn't call you to do those things. He calls you to die to yourself and to live for him. That's the normal Christian life. My desire this morning is not to be condescending or sarcastic or even judgmental. I promise. That that is not my heart this morning. But listen to me. There are a ton of people in the buckle of the Bible Belt who walked an aisle a long time ago or said a prayer a long time ago at VBS and nothing has ever changed in their life. There's no commitment to God's Word, no commitment to God's people, no commitment to living in godly community, no commitment to personal holiness, no commitment to saying no to sin, no commitment to living on mission. Don't think because you post pictures on Facebook of Easter Sunday and you can share a meme on Facebook that you're living for the Lord. That's just not the version of Christianity found in the Bible. I'm not trying to be condescending and sarcastic. I'm trying to wake you up if you are believing a lie and there's no evidence in your life that you've ever been fundamentally changed by the gospel. Because when Jesus Christ saves you, he changes you from the inside out. There's a spiritual resurrection. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. But God, being rich in mercy, cleaned us up a little bit. No, that's not what it says. God, being rich in mercy, helped us decide to finally start tithing. That's not what it says. It says, God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. The story of salvation is a story of resurrection. And we have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But when we truly do and we're born again and the Spirit changes us, we are raised anew from spiritual death to spiritual life. So friends, the question to ask is, have you truly been born again? Has the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection of Jesus changed your life in a life-changing way? I'm not saying are you perfect. I'm saying is Jesus King? Is He calling the shots? Is your life prioritized around Him because He is your Lord and King? Is He the one who's calling the shots? Is He the one that you treasure and love above all things? Friends, how you answer that question matters eternally. Because we're offered a greater salvation and we will face a greater judgment than Israel and Egypt face on the pages of Exodus 14. If you can't answer those questions with confidence, 
If the Spirit's speaking to you today, then my prayer is, is that as we close and we sing, that you will come and surrender and repent and believe and pass from death to life and have your own Red Sea resurrection. And if that's you and God's speaking to you, then I pray that you'll respond this morning in the way that God leads you. And if you need help with that, if you need to talk to someone, I'll be down at the front. If you've been born again, let's praise God together and remember what He's done. And if you haven't, run to the foot of the cross. Salvation is available. Salvation is offered, but you've got to see your need. Repent and believe. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your word and your grace and your mercy. God, I remember growing up in church and knowing stuff about Jesus, but never loving Jesus. I remember, God, doing religious rituals, but never seeing my life changed. I remember knowing and understanding the gospel, but not treasuring it and prioritizing it in my life. And God, I remember when you graciously opened my heart and softened softened it to see and to savor you. And God, my prayer this morning is not that people here will walk out feeling judged, God, but they'll walk out seriously considering these questions that matter. Because on Judgment Day, God, how we answer this question, that's the one that's going to matter. So God, as we close now and as we sing about the cross and about what Jesus has accomplished for us, God, help your people who know you by faith to praise and marvel at what you've done. And God, I pray that if anyone here doesn't know you, Lord, if anyone here knows that they need to renew their commitment to you, they need to repent of of something that's going on in their lives. God, if they need to talk to somebody, God, they'll know that this is the time, that we, we love them, we're praying for them, and God, you, you want them to respond. So God, be with us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.